when I was in high school, my best friend was a guy named Doug. And Doug, at least to my mind, excelled in all ways. And uh, as a good example, I'm sure that he got at least 100 points more than I did in the um, English section of his SATs and probably more in the range of 200 points more than I did for the math section. And he was tall and he was pretty good looking and he came from a, uh, a nuclear family where the parents had a loving relationship and everything was going beautifully and it was supportive and all that sort of thing. Didn't come from a, a, like a home like mine. And he, um, he, had, he lived in a great big house in a really lovely development. So everything pretty much went Doug's way. And, um, but the thing that made us friends, you'd think that would make it difficult for us to have anything in common. The thing that made us friends is that, at least to my mind, we were both the funniest people in the class. And I think I was slightly funnier than Doug. And so that's why I think we got matched up when he arrived at my school. I'll give you an example. We were getting bored in our history teacher's class at one point. We were in the middle of the Vietnam War and uh, we were just falling asleep in class. So one day after history class during lunch, Doug and I cooked up this idea that we should come early to the class the following day and decorate it for a party and that I should bake a birthday cake for the teacher. And when Rocco came in, my entire class would turn on the lights and yell, Happy birthday, Rocco! We had no idea when his birthday actually was. But we figured that that would be, you know, that would, that would work well. And so that's exactly what we did. So next day rolls around, we decorated the whole class, and Rocco comes in to teach more about the Vietnam War. And we throw on the lights, and we're like, Happy birthday, Rocco! And he's confused because it's not his birthday. And we're like, oh, it's not your birthday? Oh. And we try to look downcast and sad. So Rocco goes, oh, whatever, you know, like, let's have a party. So we ate, you know, ate the cake and hung out and listened to music and sat on his desk and played around, you know, through paper airplanes. And then after that, that was a great victory in our lives. Um, that day at lunch, I sat next to Doug. And I said, you know what would be funnier than having had that birthday party today in Rocco's class? And you know, what? And I said, doing the exact same thing <laughs> tomorrow. <laughs> Which we did. I went and I baked another cake. And we redecorated the room and did the exact same thing. And it was great. I was right. It was really funny. <laughs> and we got away with at least half of the class. So that's why, you know, I felt like even though Doug had all this other stuff going on, I felt that at least in terms of social popularity, I was his peer. But there are ways that um, every once in a while to be funny um, that Doug would use my actual lesser status in the world 
to kind of, you know, like if you're in a pool when you take somebody's head and you dunk it under when you're playing with them. That's pretty much what Doug would do with me every once in a while. And it was funny. He would just take me and kind of dunk my head under socially. For instance, one of the things that um, was funny because I was Doug's friend is that he was extremely waspy and affluent. And every once in a while, I'd wind up in his world. And one of those times happened to be when, I can't remember why, I happened to be in the parking lot with him um, at his family's country club, which was just even the idea, Doug was the one who introduced me to even the idea of a country club. And uh, one of the things that Doug always thought was funny uh, when I was growing up was that I was half Jewish in my, you know, like my kinky Jewish hair and all that stuff. And so Doug decides what would be funny while we're waiting for his parents to come out of the country club with me sitting, you know, like standing there in the parking lot waiting for Mr. and Mrs. Hasselbrook. Big, tall, gorgeous, blonde Doug is standing there and there's all these people going back and forth in the parking lot. And Doug announces loudly, Jew in the parking lot! There is a Jew in the parking lot! It was great. It was super funny. <laughs> so, you know, this was sort of part of the thing that would go on. It was, it was the Lori and Doug routine. And then one day, out of the blue, Doug, in the middle of a conversation with me, where we're laughing and stuff back and forth, um, and he's, you know, and I think in the middle of here, let me just pause to say, there was probably some kind of hormone thing going on, because it's high school. And I think that Doug might have had a crush on me. And I think it's quite possible that I had a crush on Doug. But there was something you know, weird about it, because we never actually hitched up. So we were having this aggressive you know, pushing back and forth, joking with each other, picking at each other. And he suddenly says to me, are you gay? And I'm totally startled, because I, I have absolutely, I never even really thought about it. So I was like, what? I don't, I don't even know. And when he said that to me, I feel like it was something like this hand in my life. You know, I think I was a senior, we were seniors, and it was almost as if somebody dubbed me, you know, gay <laughs> in that moment. And I started to see that probably Doug knew something about me, something about who I was, that I wasn't clear about because he knew me so well and we were watching each other grow up and he was kind of insightful and smart. And that was the beginning of um, this new episode in my life because not long after that I found out that what he saw in me happened to be a reality about who I was. And then it really, when I think about my life in the church, that truth about who I am defined uh, my relationship to how I was going to be in the church. When I came before that Baptist church in South Jersey, because I knew I loved Jesus and I, I knew I, I was called to be a minister, was I going to tell them the truth? Was I going to tell them that Doug was right and I was gay? Right? And that could, go, that could blow up on my face really quickly. And in fact, it did. And things sort of fell apart for me when I said who I really was. 
And that's continued. That didn't just happen, whatever, 25 years ago in South Jersey. That's been the theme of my life. When I started working in Hoboken, in the shelter, and in public housing, and you know, most, many of you don't know necessarily what this is like, but when you're getting to know people, what are the questions that you ask? Oh, are you married? And this was in the 90s when I couldn't just say yes and avoid the question, kind of dance between the lines of stuff. I could either give this complicated answer, which is, well, not legally, but I was married in the church and my wife is Rosemary, and I don't know whether you believe that's that I'm married, but I think I'm married. I could go into all of that, or I could say no, or I could say yes, and then it got even more complicated, right? Not only are you married, do you have any kids? Yes, I have kids. And that happened, um, in, and, and the way I would answer that question could either end a relationship or open it up in an entirely different way. I could close a, close a door on myself in ter terms of how I could work with other clergy and other people in the neighborhood, or it got op more open, depending on how I answered that question. It still happens today. Downtown Jersey City is full of conservative churches. I make it a point. I make it a point to try to work with all of them. Guess what gets asked of me all the time? I am married, and I have an opportunity to say, yes, I am, and her name is Rosemary McLaughlin, or I can just as easily say, hey, look at the squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> and depending on what I ate for breakfast, and how much sleep I got the night before, frankly, it could go either way. Depends. Depends on when you catch me and how much I'm ready to take, take on. If it's like 2 o'clock in the afternoon or 8.30 in the morning, depends on where I am. Before we got to this part in the gospel this morning, before this, this is actually the third sighting of Jesus post-resurrection, a month ago, Peter was standing outside of the court where Jesus was being charged for heresy. And he was warming his hands by a charcoal fire. And people came up to him and they asked him about Jesus. And usually when we tell that of the story during Holy Week, we say that that is the story of Peter's denial of Jesus. But I'm going to tell you that I don't think it's really the story of Jesus's, uh, Peter's denial of Jesus. I think it's really Peter's denial of Peter. Because the question that is asked of him is, did you know this man? Did you follow this man? Were you one of his disciples? Those are the questions that are asked of Peter. And Jesus is the one who Peter loved and followed. And Jesus is the one who defined who Peter was after he left his nets on that shoreline and said, I'll follow you. Jesus, Peter's identity became completely 
connected to who Jesus was in his life. And so Peter, in front of that charcoal fire during Holy Week, wasn't denying Jesus. He was really denying the thing that gave him life. He was denying himself. And so we come to this third story of resurrection. And Peter is been, has been walking around for a month with bearable weight, this millstone around his neck of having denied the truth and the core of his identity, the thing that gave him life. And he decides he doesn't really know what else to do. So what he's going to do is he's just going to go back to what he used to do before he knew Jesus, which was he just went to go fishing. And his friends go along with him, and they go back in the boat, and Peter is trying to reclaim the life he had before he knew Jesus. It's fruitless. He can't catch anything. There's nothing going into the net. No matter how he tries, there's no life for him going backwards to his life before Jesus. And then there's this person who the gospel tells us is Jesus. We know it's Jesus. But the disciples don't yet know who it is. And he's standing off on the shore looking at the disciples with their empty net. And he calls out, Children, have you caught any fish? And Peter just rolls his eyes and says, No, been out here all night. It's kind of hopeless. Can't catch anything. And the man on the shore says to Peter, Peter, throw your net over on the other side of the ship. And the disciples throw their net over on the other side of the ship. And it gets so filled with fish that they can't even pull the net up onto the boat because it's way too heavy. And that is the moment in the story when disciples realize that the person on the shore is Jesus. Because the way you know it's Jesus talking to you is that he brings abundant life. He's the one that fills you up to bursting with real life. And John's gospel has made this clear over and over again, beginning with the first miracle, the wedding of Canaan and Galilee. Every place that Jesus goes in your life, there's abundance. And so that's how they recognize who he is. And I love that whole slapstick, this is so Peter, the slapstick routine where he realizes it's Jesus and he'd been naked because he'd been out fishing all night and then he sees it's Jesus and he wants to get himself dressed up for the, um, for the moment and he puts on his clothes and then he jumps in the water. It's just so, it's so Peter. There he goes, jumps, gets dressed, jumps in the water, swims out to Jesus and when he gets to the shoreline, there's another coal fire. The last time that Peter was in front of a coal fire was when he was warming his hands outside of the courtroom and denying that he ever had any connection to Jesus. I'll bet the smell and the sensation of that coal fire 
standing before the resurrected Christ just waved over him. And Jesus asks Peter this question. Peter, do you love me? I'm going to tell you again that this question, do you love me, is not so much a question about who Jesus is, but about who Peter is and his real self and what defines his real self. And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. You're who I really am. And Jesus asks it a second time. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than anything? Yes. I love you. You define who I am. My love for you is who I really am. You bring me real life. And he asks him a third time. Peter, do you love me? And Peter is able to say again, even though it hurts, yes, Lord, I love you. Because it was three times, three times last month that Peter denied his knowledge of who Jesus was. And I'm going to tell you that this moment between Peter and Jesus isn't Jesus judging Peter. It's Jesus walking Peter back through his denial of himself taking him back to who he really was. So there is no judgment here. There is actually an opportunity that Jesus is giving Peter to reclaim who he really was. And he denied who he was three times. And he found out when he finished denying who he really was, there was no more life left for him. His life was useless. He saved his life, but he lost it. And so, when Jesus invites Peter to confess his love three times, what he's doing is he's bringing Peter back into being alive. And by the way, that's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is inviting us back into real life. And the way that God glorifies God's self is by the individual human being becoming fully and completely alive. I was at two retreats this weekend. <laughs> one was one that I was leading for our vestry, and then the other one, and that was in West Park, New York, and then the other one was um, preaching at a women's um, alcohol and addiction recovery weekend that my friend Robert Griner was leading over in the Poconos. And I wouldn't have done it if Robert hadn't taken us to Panama, you know, our little group to Panama. I felt like when he called me and asked me if I could do it, I felt like it was the godfather, you know. I've come to reclaim my favor, you know. That's how I felt. But I got there, and I'm so glad that I went because... What I wound up um, talking to the women in that room about were all of the names 
that they had been given um, that brought them into that room. And all of the ways they'd been defined by either a mistake they'd made or a, a hurt or a wound. And so we talked about the names addict and the name drunk and the name failure and the name hypocrite and the name liar, all these names. And the only difference between the women in that room and the Poconos and the people in this room today is that those women kind of have their names that they've been called out on their t-shirts. That's the thing that brings them into the room, right? Because they've had, they've been named. They've been named and they've been defined by the mistakes that they've made or the wounds that have been inflicted upon them or the pain that they've caused. And those are the names that, they, that suck the life out of them. And I talk to them about how all of us only have one real name. And it's not drunk. And it's sure as hell not faggot or dyke. And it's not hypocrite and it's not liar. And it's not any of the other nasty names you can think. The only real name that you have is beloved child of God. That is your name. And Christ this morning calls us to that fire, that charcoal fire where we forgot what our real name was. And says, Ed, do you love me? Carlos, do you love me? Elizabeth, do you love me? Claim your real name. And the thing that I love most about this story, it's the very end of the gospel. And the last thing that Jesus says to us is the thing that he said at the very beginning when he met Peter at the shoreline when he first saw him, which is, follow me. Follow me. Amen.